Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. Our topic today is certainly not a cheerful one, but is critically important, and I thank you for joining us. We are going to be discussing suicide and suicide prevention with several guests who are professionals in the field. As we proceed, please know that our phones are open at the studio, and we welcome your calls at 802-244-1777. And I want to note the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255. And with that, let me introduce our first two guests for the first half hour. Uh, Ms. Stephanie Bush is the Injury Prevention Manager in the Division of Emergency Preparedness, Response, and Injury Prevention at the Vermont Department of Health. Mr. Kirk Postlewaite is the director of the Vermont Suicide Prevention Center. Uh, he has a, a bachelor's degree from the University of Georgia, and a master's uh, in community he- mental health from Southern New Hampshire uh, Center, uh, Su- Southern New Hampshire University, excuse me, and he is a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Uh, welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Okay. Glad to be here. Let me... Uh, let me just give, uh, throw out some statistics, and I'm sure you'll expand on these. Uh, through the year 2020, last year, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States and is probably underreported. It may be even higher. It is the most common cause of death for young people ages 15 to 24. And in terms of absolute numbers, the, the people at uh, high risk are older men for completed suicides. There are as many as 20 suicide attempts for each completed suicide. Some of the diagnoses that serve as risk factors for suicide include depression, bipolar disorder, traumatic brain injury, and schizophrenia. Also, uh, prior suicide attempts are a red flag, uh, as well as other uh, risk factors, and we're going to talk more about these. So welcome to you both. Miss um, Miss Bush, let me start with you. You're uh, with the uh, Department of Health. Uh, in Vermont, uh, leading this uh, department. Tell us a little bit about what your department does. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so with the, at the Vermont Department of Health, we work across the lifespan and with multiple um, agencies, community partners, really looking at suicide prevention and suicide as a, a public health issue. And it's so complex, and it's not just about getting somebody into mental health care, but really looking comprehensively across the lifespan to ensure that we are working to reduce stigma, encourage help-seeking, and really working to build supportive communities um, 
to ensure that when people are struggling that they're able to get the help that they need. Uh, do you work directly with the public or do you work through uh, uh, health care and mental and fit, uh, health care and, and other providers? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the work that we do is around trying to improve the systems of care. So both with, um, and I know that, that Kirk can speak a little bit to some of the work that they're doing um, at the community level, but working to help educate healthcare providers, including EMS providers that, that show up on ambulances, um, emergency departments, all the way through healthcare and also mental health care to make sure that they're leveraging evidence-based practices, thinking about not, um, you know, making sure that people that when they're struggling with mental health or specifically suicidal ideation, that they're getting the level of care that they need um, in the right setting. What would so be an, what would be an example of evidence-based practice, for example, for uh, emergency medical service uh, personnel? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, when one, some of the stuff that we've seen around COVID, you know, coming out of a two years of a global pandemic, is a lot of people have been very isolated. They're, um, you know, not able to leverage their normal social connections that they have. And so if someone calls 911 and uh, 911 either police or EMS show up, understanding that that person is, is struggling a little bit, helping to maybe de-escalate or uh, calm them down a little bit and then figuring out what's the best um kind of next step. So do they need to go to the emergency department? Do they need to engage with our mental health services and like our, our crisis teams? Um, or are they, we just need to connect them with maybe their local clergyman or uh, with a parent if it's a youth, trying to figure out what support they need in that moment. I talked about, I mentioned some of the statistics in the uh in the beginning, uh, those were not necessarily statistics specifically for Vermont, Vermont, they're national statistics, but, um, have the number of suicide attempts and completed suicides gone up in the, in recent years? Yeah, so, what, what some of the stuff that we saw early on in the pandemics, we knew that it was going to be very, uh, an emotional bur- burden thinking about literally just a global pandemic. And so we came together with a number of state agencies and then also our community partners. And um, Kirk's organization is a great example, a great community partner to really look in how can we support people in like a mental health capacity and um, promote connectedness in the community during the pandemic. So we have unfortunately seen increases in both emergency department visits and also deaths um, in specifically Vermont. And where um, I would also like to um, add in, um, have maybe a more positive framing. In 2021, over 3,000 Vermonters called the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which was an increase from past years. Which obviously we we want those numbers to be zero, but we do want people to be reaching out for help if they do need it. What kind of training do people on suicide prevention lines have? That is a great question. I'm actually going to pass that question off to Kirk because he All right, Kirk, let me in, let me bring you in, Kirk Postlethwaite. What what uh, and what is your connection with the suicide prevention lines and and what kind of training do they get? Sure. Um, well, just real quickly, I work for the Vermont Suicide Prevention Center, and we're a public-private partnership that works um, in conjunction with Vermont Agency of Human Services, and with our primary effort being to promote. 
um, knowledge, attitudes, skills, and resources across communities to reduce suicide. So what my connection is to um, folks who are working the lifelines within the state now um, is um, an effort to begin to roll out some um, a number that will um, begin to be used this summer, uh, specifically in July, and the number will be 988. Um, and that will slowly kind of roll in to be the um, replacement for the, the national suicide um, prevention line that um, you shared earlier and we'll be sure to share again. Um, again, 988 is not available now, but it will be available this summer. And we're really looking forward to that because it's going to be an opportunity to have an identified number for people who are in um, a behavioral health, a mental health, that's an emotional and or a suicidal crisis to have a specific line to call for that. And in terms of the training that people who work the lifelines uh, get, it's, it's very rigorous. We have two of our community mental health agencies in the state right now who are fielding calls in state. So that's NCSS, which is up in the uh, St. Albans region, and then NKHS, which is up in the um, St. John's um, region and, and what they do is they take the calls and they have a really uh, rigorous training program that they go through the Lifeline Center, which is a national accreditation. Um, luckily, both of these centers were already um, equipped with people who dealt with mental health crisis through their emergency services divisions within those community mental health agencies. So they had a leg up and they were able to um, meet the national standards um, and become accredited lifeline centers to take these kind of crisis calls and really work with people who are struggling, um, you know, with suicidal ideation um, or other challenges and to kind of help them in the moment of crisis and potentially then connect them to resources, as Stephanie was saying, that could be really beneficial to helping them move through that crisis and get help if they need it. Thank you. Let me also let our listeners know, uh, I didn't mention at the top that the second half hour is going to, we're going to focus on, uh, suicides in the military. So if you have, if you've been in the military, have friends or family that have been in the military, we're going to be talking with, uh, Dr. Uh, Melanie Nerish from the, uh, White River Junction of VA. So, uh, Mr. Possilwaite, let me ask you this, just, uh, and you probably worked on these hotlines, I imagine, um, Give us a typical call and how you would handle that kind of call, uh, just sort of a hypothetical call. What happens? Sure. I, I would uh, want to qualify. I have not done crisis calls, but I am, um, you know, I have a history of working in um, our community health agencies. Sure. And, um, and Yeah, very extensive history, I might calls. add. I didn't go through your whole CV, but it's extensive. Yeah, so I... You know, a call could be, you know, anything from someone who is, um, I think as Stephanie alluded to, feeling really isolated and, you know, particularly with what's happened through COVID, um, you know, potentially more isolated than they've felt before and they just really don't know what to do and they need to reach out to someone for some help with the feelings they're experiencing uh, that are associated with that isolation. So they could call this number, um, you know, by using the, the National Suicide Prevention uh Number they could call that they would get routed in as I mentioned to someone from Vermont, which has been a real concerted effort uh, to make sure that the calls are fielded in state, and then they would be connected to um, you know a crisis call clinician who would listen to their concerns, uh, certainly validate 
you know, the reality of what's yeah, happening. Tell me specifically person. as a counselor, what would you say to someone? What would be some of your first responses? Let's say I was the person calling in. What would, what would be some of your first responses or questions? Well, I think, you know, honestly, the first thing I would want to do is really, you know, ask what's going on for the person um, and then allow them to express themselves because a, a real key component um, to that type of work is giving the person space to, you know, say what it is they need to say and to feel heard. Um, I think the questions, you know, that could ensue from there would be, you know, based on my level of concern, um, you know, if they felt like they might have um, some intentions to hurt themselves um, or if they were considering suicide. If I uh, felt that um, that was a question that needed to be asked, I would ask that directly because research has certainly borne out that addressing these um Questions directly is, uh, in fact, very can be very relieving for the person on the other end of the call uh, because it's something that they've been trying to understand themselves. And if they haven't gotten help, having that question asked directly can allow them to, again, further express themselves. And then the, the crisis clinician is trained to evaluate the level to the best of their ability of, you know, um, the potential need for immediate supports for this person or if it's someone that they can just, you know, talk through. Yeah. What are your, when you, when you think about the level of concern, uh, what are your, what runs through your mind? What kind of algorithm when you're talking to someone about how concerned you should be in that moment? Well, it really, so the key components of this are, you know, obviously asking that question, you know, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? If the answer to that is yes, then the next question, if you are kind of looking for the steps of um, an algorithm, would be to say, do you have a plan? Because that a plan can indicate that someone is, in fact, thinking more seriously and has thought through the steps. And then if someone were to indicate that they have a plan, you would then ask about the access that this person might have to what we term lethal means. Um, that could be, you know, that could be a gun, that could be medication. Um, so in other words, kind of walking through the steps that could make the risk for more imminent harm and or death to this person um, a little bit clearer. And then if that's the case, you know, potentially reaching out um, to uh, 911 for crisis services in that situation. But oftentimes, a real I just want to make sure that I emphasize this, a real key component to this is allowing the person to vent, allowing the person to express themselves and feel heard while also measuring that risk acuity. Um, that's what a lot of the crisis clinicians on those call lines do. Yeah, just to to highlight what you just said, that in, some people think bringing up the idea of suicide puts it into people's minds. And what you're saying is the research shows that no, asking directly is is a very important uh, part of the process. That's right. Yes. Yeah, research definitely. That's a myth. That's one of the myths we try and tell about um, suicidal. What are some of the other myths? Of uh, I'll ask, open that up to either of you. What are some of the other myths about suicide that have sort of been debunked over the years? Hey, Kirk. What I one thing I would also like to add as well, and I I know we started to kind of touch on this is um, one of the things that we've done both as a state and with our community partners is really working to raise awareness around what we're calling like suicide prevention awareness trainings. So there's You Matter, which is um, Kirk Kano can speak to, Mental Health First Aid. There's a variety of different trainings, both available to 
clinicians that are kind of like the higher level professional help, but then also um, community opportunities to really be able to foster that conversation and help people who may be concerned about either a loved one or a child to be able to have that conversation and know, like you were just saying, that asking someone if they're thinking about suicide or they're thinking about harming themselves, that's not going to put that that question into their head. And actually, as Kirk said, it will potentially even allow the opportunity, a sense of relief for someone if they've been struggling with that to be able to say yes and then be able to get those um, that help. So there's a number of trainings that are available to community members um, that I think would be great if people are interested in kind of how do I have that conversation with someone? What can I do to help support my community and my loved ones um, that can help give people that language and that space to be able to, to ask those questions? You know, I mentioned at the top that the the uh, people may not be aware, but the, the highest number of suicides is from older men. And they may be one of the hardest groups to reach in what you're talking about. How do you reach out to, say, an older, isolated males or men? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And um, also we'll invite um, Kirk to, to speak after me. So I think some of those is recognizing. Um, so one of the kind of warning signs around someone that, that may be struggling with mental health um, is like a change in behavior. So if they are, are normally very positive and then all of a sudden they're, um, you know, or like there's kind of a random change where they might have a real mood difference or if um, some other warning signs might be, they start giving away their prized possessions, um, if they're talking about death or talking about suicide or, or even just say they have a suicide plan, those are all warning flags to um, kind of start that conversation and really showing that someone's struggling. So one thing I would say, if someone came up to me and was talking about those things or, you know, gave away their car that they love, I'd be like, hey, what's What's going on? Like, let's let's have a conversation about this. Not um, everyone feels. Not everyone might feel comfortable having that conversation. Who could they turn to? Could they turn to your office, for example, if they were concerned about a loved one or a, or a friend who was showing these signs? Who would they turn to? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, one, I would say a great kind of baseline would be calling the suicide prevention lifeline. They, you know, a lot of it is for um, you know someone who's in crisis, but. Um, I've engaged, I've utilized this and also the Trevor Project, which I can speak to in a minute, um, is really just, hey, I'm concerned about someone, what can I do? Um, and so the one, talking with, calling the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, having a conversation with them, they might be able to give you some language of how to start that conversation. Also, we have a number of um, community mental health agencies across the state that really they have crisis lines that you can call or even just engaging with them. Um, and these are confidential, right? You don't, if someone calls there, they don't have to give their, all of their Correct. information yeah, and their name yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, that's a very important clarification. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons why, uh, one of the reasons why completed suicides are so lethal um, is the method of suicide. And in particular, uh, men seem to com- uh, complete suicide through the use of guns uh, more than women do. And those are obviously very lethal. That's a very lethal method. And we have a lot of guns in Vermont, as, as many states do. <clears throat> um, so the corollary is, uh, can we help try and reduce completed suicides by 
by looking at uh, gun laws and uh, and especially for people who may be at risk. But so-called red flag uh, laws. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, um, Dr. Myers. I, there's a it's really important, you know, um, discussion to be had around this. And one really, um, I think, impactful data point is that 55% of suicide deaths in Vermont are due to firearms. And about 43% of all Vermont households uh, store firearms in or around the house. And um, 70% of households with firearms in the home keep a firearm loaded in the house. And of that 17%, about 65% of those keep the firearm unlocked. And, you know, I would certainly say that Vermont has a very long and proud history of gun ownership. And we know that that community can be really, really helpful in helping to reduce death uh, by suicide with the use of a firearm or accidental deaths, um, you know, through a firearm. And what that comes down to is safe storage. And the best practice for safe storage is to store the gun in the house separate from the ammunition, both locked up, again, away from each other, if at all possible, and to make sure that, you know, um, that's something that's that's done in a very diligent manner because then those moments of crisis can pass by and, you know, that's one of the most effective messaging campaigns we can put out there. Safe storage saves lives. We have a caller in a minute. We're going to take Sam in just a minute. But briefly, the red flag laws, do those encompass also if, if the police are called in and they sense that someone is distraught and, and at risk for hurting themselves, not to mention others, uh, have those red flag laws been effective? Or let me also ask waiting lists, because that's a big issue in the legislature in terms of waiting lists, in, in terms of reducing impulsivity. If there's a three-day or seven-day waiting list to buy a gun, does that help? You know, I can certainly speak to the reality of the, the moment of crisis. Most of the time, um, for suicide is short-lived. So that's kind of another myth we dispel is that, you know, someone who's suicidal is always going to be suicidal. Uh, you know, they, a person may have a moment of crisis, and if I would put it this way, if they don't have access to lethal means, and guns are the most lethal means, then that can potentially prevent um, that issue from ending in someone dying. Um, uh, so, you know, it's certainly an important consideration because, again, with suicide, you know, it can be a moment of crisis, and if, if something that's very lethal is not easily accessible, that can be helpful. That's very helpful to know. Let me take this call from Sam in Brattleboro. Sam, you're on the line. Thank you. Um, your guests have sort of touched on this, but for the lay person like myself, is there a checklist of things to watch for in a, a friend or family member? I think I think they actually did talk about that, and I think it was helpful to hear that. Some of and. Uh, um, well, I, must, I got in a little late. Yeah, but no, they they did go over that, and I and I thank you for your call. Let me just ask both guests in the few minutes that we have left. I mean, it is also a, uh, interesting that historically, in times of actual wartime, military wartime, when bombs are dropping, etc., suicide rates actually go down. Um, we've seen that in various wars and various communities. Uh, during the COVID, as we've been talking about suicide attempts and suicides have actually gone up. Um, I guess I would ask for each of you your thoughts on this. My thought personally is that 
we focused, unfortunately, on social distancing when perhaps we should have been reframing that as physical distancing, which does make a difference. But there was this issue that uh, we needed to social distance from each other. What are your thoughts? Why have suicide rates gone up during COVID pandemic and while they are actually lower during wartime? Thanks for that that question. And what I would also say, too, for additional resources, we do have um, several different suicide prevention pages on the healthvermont.gov website that has additional information around, like, warning signs and also data and whatnot. And what I would say is, in regards to specifically the pandemic, so the, the first year in 2020, we did actually, we did not see a spike in the U.S. around suicides. Um, and some of that, there's varying research that's going to be coming out um, and kind of looking at what that looks like. And part of it is uh, a survival mode of, okay, we're going through a pandemic. We need to, like, buckle down and figure out how to get through what we're getting through. Um, and also for some people that have been, you know, struggling with chronic mental health challenges, it can be a normalizing where everyone kind of feels not great, so it can actually maybe even build a sense of community a little bit. And some of the stuff that we've seen out of um, past disasters, it's actually coming out of it when people are starting to process and starting to think about what's happened over the last two years that people can, you know, they're grieving, they're processing, they have loved ones that passed away because of COVID and whatnot. And that's really why it's important that we, you know, the work that Kirk and I do and and across with our community partners is working to reduce stigma, really encouraging, help-seeking, promoting community, um, having, you know, bringing that back together. uh, Dr. Myers, as you said, that uh, it's not social distancing, it was more physical distancing. We should have worked a little bit on the language. But so how do we come together as a community to support each other and also in specifically people who may be struggling a little bit? I'm, we're going to go to break in a, just a few seconds. I want to thank both of you um, for your help and uh, continue to do what you're doing. Um, thank you, uh, Kirk Postlewaite and Stephanie Bush. And please stay with us for the second half. We're going to come back with... Um, uh, Dr. Michelle Narish from the White River VA. We're going to talk about suicide prevention in our veterans. Dr. Lewis Myers back with the second half of Healthcare Today. We're talking about suicide prevention. And I want to welcome Dr. Michelle Narish uh, from the uh, VA uh, in White River Junction. She heads up the suicide prevention uh, unit there. Uh, Dr. Narish uh, went to college at American University uh, She in Washington, D.C. She got her master's degree in community counseling from Montclair State, New Jersey. She got a second master's in clinical psychology, and she got her doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis on forensic psychology. And that was from the Pacific Graduate School of Psychology in Palo Alto, California. Dr. Narish, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I don't know if you had a chance to hear the first half. We were talking about some of the resources available to the um wider civilian community in Vermont, but there's been a uh, significant increase in in suicides among uh, our veterans, not only in Vermont, but across the country, and it's of great concern, obviously. Um, 
talk to us a little bit about why you think there has been this increase and, and over how long a period of time has this graph been going up? Yes, of, of course. Um, the, the data for now that we have most accessible to us is marked up to 2019. And as we all know, a lot has changed since that time. But what I think is important to know is that VA initiatives and suicide prevention has actually decreased the rates of suicide um, in 2019. So the efforts that were being made within Veterans Affairs are actually working um, and going in the right direction. And then, of course, the pandemic had hit us and has affected everybody in, in a gross amount of ways. How did the pandemic affect the services that veterans uh, hospitals are able to provide? Mm. Um, so the hospitals are, are available. I think the VA has done a great job in regards to making sure that services are always available even throughout the pandemic. I will say that, um, yes, in that, you know, I did listen to the interviews prior to mine and speaking the difference of social isolation versus physical isolation. So we did have to practice some of that just like many other facilities around the state did as well. Um, but I will say that VA had advancements in the virtual appointments. Um, we actually had great representation and attendance with providers uh, able to provide care, mental health, physical health, anything to veterans uh, in the community to address any of their concerns during that time. Suicide within the military still is higher, I think, than than in the civilian Population. Can you talk about some of the reasons why you think that is? Sure. Uh, it's a great, great topic. Um, something that I can definitely talk about is, um, as we know, suicide is complex. Um, there's no one single point of understanding or uh, entry to understand why somebody would think to die by suicide. Um, but when we look at veteran populations, a big thing, and I know that Kirk had spoken about this before, is the idea of access to lethal means. Um, and what we know about suicide and suicide prevention is that the time between thought of action, thought and action is really only an hour. And because our veterans do have access to more lethal means, more firearms, there's not as much time to, to go between that thought and action. So really what Kirk was talking about, about um, um, means, uh, mean safety, lethal mean safety, is creating enough time and space between the thought of wanting to hurt, harm yourself or kill yourself and you actually picking up the gun and doing it. You know, in terms of the culture of the military, and, and uh, there has uh, obviously there's been a lot of attention on, on sexual assaults within the military, but also... In terms of suicide uh, behavior and suicide risk, there is a culture that's, I think, still endemic uh, in the military that of toughness, that uh, if you're struggling with mental health, uh, it's not something that people feel com- often feel comfortable in talking about. It may actually have repercussions for their career. I think there was a recent article, I don't uh, in the New York Times or one of the national newspapers about a, a, a high-ranking general who, who was – went through his own period of suicidality, uh, sought help, and is now making that sort of his his real focus on the work he's doing within the system. But can you talk a little bit about the military culture and how you think that might impact uh, suicide and seeking help? 
Sure. I think it's it's very important um, aspect. When I, I used to do a lot more clinical work as a psychologist within the VA, um, and one of the things that I would always talk about is, you know, mental health providers tell you to do the exact opposite that you are trained to do in the military. Um, we want you to talk about all of those hard things that, that maybe you were trained not to talk about. Um, so it's a shift. It is definitely a culture shift going back into civilian life and, and learning how to have those connections and to practice vulnerability um, and understanding that practicing vulnerability is not the same as weakness um, and that it actually creates deeper relationships and connects you to the care that you need in the community. Uh, one thing that I learned recently was that DOD was actually going to be um, incorporating a lot of what we call whole health or holistic um, interventions within their trainings, which I think is huge because this movement really looks at um, spiritual, physical, mental health, all of these aspects that make us people and influence our lives. And um, active duty military are going to be learning about things like how to how to self-regulate, how to incorporate yoga into my life, how do I um, balance my nutrition and, and keep myself well. So that skill can be carried out and is probably going and is going to be a safety factor for them as they continue their career in the military and thereafter. You know, it's not just the military up that has seen some increases. We know that Police departments, uh, suicide rate is, is rather high. Uh, we've seen some, unfortunately, I think one or, or two suicides among the police officers who were there at the uh, January 6th at the Capitol. Uh, at least one committed suicide within days after that event. Um, physicians in my own career, in my own profession, uh, uh, have a fairly high rate of suicide um, compared to the general population and, and other professions. Is there some... Is there something about the, the kind of personalities that might be drawn to either military service, medicine, or, or other such professions that, that might people put people at risk? That's a really great question. And I, I think I alluded to it before. Is I wish it was as easy as to say, oh, here is the one thing that we know um, that this puts somebody at higher risk. We know collectively what that looks like, and I know, prior you talked about risk factors and warning signs. Um, the issue itself is just extremely complex, and I, I would hate to say, oh, you should really look at this type of profession and know that there's increased rates of suicide because we are more than just our jobs. We are more than just our profession, and it's really looking at that whole person and seeing where is their financial stability, where is their housing from, is there substance use involved? How are their relationships with their family? Um, there's a lot of other factors that go into it. There's an interesting statistic about the military. I don't know if it's an urban myth or you can you can confirm or deny this, but that uh, suicides actually were higher in the military among service men and women who were not on the front lines, who were serving but were in uh, more administrative capacities or, or not directly involved in combat. Is that true? I actually, I, I'm not familiar with that statistic. I'd be, I'd be really interested to, to follow up with that though. It, you know, it brings up the issue of just, uh, if it is true, you know, to my mind, it brings up the issue of solidarity, cohesion, teamwork, where people might feel more of a team than, uh, 
who are on the front lines uh, relying on each other in those life and death situations and they might, you know, further back. Uh, Let me ask before we go any further, is there a hotline for veterans? I I mentioned the hotline earlier for for civilians, but is there a hotline specifically for veterans who can call? Yes, um, there's the Veterans Crisis Line, the 1-800-273-8255. And once you get to that number, you can press 1 and you'll be connected to a responder. Um, I also want to let people know that you can also get in touch through the Crisis Line through chat online if you don't feel like talking to somebody or through text message. And that number is 838-255. This is a maybe a, a diversion, but you you have a special emphasis on forensic psychology. What is forensic psychology? Forensic psychology is uh, it's people want to believe that it, it's all like CSI, um, but it's not that super exciting. It's really around assessment, around capacity um, to stand trial. A lot of mental health issues are related to forensic psychology, so it involves a lot of testing. Um, my previous work and my many years ago, my dissertation actually worked with um, VA police and um, training training them in, in trauma and PTSD and uh, best practice of how to, to intervene in those situations. So it, it is work with law enforcement as well as the other side of um, the legal system. Where this may be a little off topic of suicide specifically, but in the realm of PTSD, we're seeing some interesting developments in terms of some of the treatments. And I don't know if you've been involved in these, uh, using certain things like, uh, uh, psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, or even LSD and supervised situations. Uh, have you been involved in any of those studies or any comment? I have uh, not in those studies. No, I haven't. I'm the world of um, PTSD and trauma treatment is ever expanding and ever growing. I would like to make the connection that um, just like that is with PTSD, where we kind of know at this point what primary interventions are working, they're still trying all of these other non-conventional interventions. Um, with suicidality, I would say that the same is also in process that we but the difference is we actually don't have all as many answers as we do within PTSD um which is why it it makes the issue that much more complex and which is why we really communicate to everyone that suicide is is a public health issue we all have a hand in in helping um each other i mentioned earlier that uh, and i think it's well known that the ratio of completed suicides is much higher in men and particularly in older men. The ratio of attempted suicides, which is often as much as 20 to 1, uh, in, attempted to completed suicides, but those attempted suicides are much more frequent in women. In the military, among military women and men, do you see the same statistics or, or are women in the military more likely to complete their suicides? Um, the latter is correct. So um, what we know is that suicide rates are higher in men and women who are veterans. Why do you think that is? Again, back to the weapons or, or any other mm-hmm. reasons? Yeah, it's, it is the access. Um, it's access 
to means. So as I mentioned before um, about firearms, um, we know that people are responsible firearm owners. Um, and then what was kind of even talked about before, high rate, there are high rates of firearm ownership, in, even in Vermont and within veteran <laughs> um, population. Um, so just taking those things in consideration, the, the rurality of the area, veterans, and just the increased access to firearms um, is, are all things so to look at. are you saying rural populations have a somewhat higher risk than more urban? Correct. So when you look at Vermont uh, statistics compared to, I mean, obviously we're much smaller state population-wise, but per capita, how do we rank uh, in terms, where are we in terms of comparing it to other, particularly rural states around the country? Yeah, um, so I looked at the data a little while ago, and it's actually on point with national data, but when you look at it, I think the interesting thing is that Vermont's not a large state, Um, so... When, when you're saying that we are on, quote unquote, on par with the, the nation, it's actually, I feel like, a state where we should be lower. So I think rates here just are just high right now. You've been involved with forensic psychology. So after, when you have a veteran that has, has committed suicide, do you go and look at that situation? Uh, what can you learn from, from looking at for example, an individual case rather than the aggregate? Mm-hmm. When somebody dies by suicide, um, uh, you know, VA has their own processes and procedures, and we make sure, one, um, first and foremost, uh, outreach to the family, outreach to um, the community, to the providers involved in that veteran's care, um, really trying to do as much postvention support around to make sure people are aware of the resources that we have within VA to get them through this process. Um, as we look through what the case itself, we look for any gaps in care. We look for any opportunities of improvement. If there were any barriers to treatment that, that got in the way of veteran getting help, those are the things that we want to look at because in VA, you know, we always... Um, we are always striving to be the lead in mental health. Uh, and part of that is really one of the beautiful things I love about VA is that we have a wealth of resources. Um, we have a wealth of information. We have huge data sets that really empower and guide our treatment interventions so that we know that we're doing the best that we can. Um, so with that, just letting everyone know um, that we do take these things obviously very seriously and we look for how we can do better. Well, the military, as you know, has a um, the, maybe the most basic uh, edict is leave no one behind uh, on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, life can be a battlefield. Um, I think what you're talking about, uh, reaching out to family, is critically important because we also know one of the risk factors, and I'm, I don't know if I mentioned it up front, but one of the risk factors for Suicide is having a parent or other close relative who has committed suicide, particularly if the uh, if the child is younger at the time when the parent committed suicide. So you may be reducing risk factors for future generation. That's our hope, um, which is why, you know, every veteran who has thoughts of dying by suicide, we, 
we treat everything, even if it's said in jest, even if it's said as like a passing comment, we treat it seriously um, because you just never know. So we ensure that we're screening for suicidality every year. Um, just as a check-in, just to see how people are doing. We, as part of suicide prevention in the VA, part of what I do is empower our providers to feel okay asking these questions. I provide trainings for community providers, for caregivers, um, to empower people, to let them know what was said previously. It's okay to ask. And what I always say is you will never regret, regret asking the question, but you will always regret not asking. Oh, that's a very, very good uh, rule of thumb there. Um, so, you know, you, talking about how important and how special the VA is, there there has been a change in, in recent years opening up the uh, uh, private uh, community, uh, private uh, health community or non-military health community to veterans. Uh, and, and some uh, VA hospitals are, are even at risk of closure. Um, um, what would we lose by? I, I guess I should ask, what would we lose and what would we gain if if VA services were not as uh, uh, accessible? Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, I'm a little biased in this, <laughs> um, but I just feel like VA. Um, we we know how to. I believe. I would love to believe that we know how to take care of our veterans. Um, they're very special. Um, part of our population in our community that um, many f- talk about how they feel like it is a safe place for them because it is a place where people have similar histories where they don't have to explain certain parts of their life and they can use as many acronyms as they want and everyone understands their language. Um, so by losing VA, I, I know that there's restructuring going on. I'm not so clear about the exact closing of VA services, um, but some common concerns I have are just availability. Um, right now, as we know, through COVID, a lot of um, hospitals in the community and there's, there's staffing issues. Um, in addition to now, if you're going to be changing the structure, how are we if we're going to make this move, how are we empowering our community partners to take on this extra population and provide the best care and manage, you know, the increase of everyone that they're serving? Um, and I just want to highlight that we, you know, VA um, is part of our accessibility. Just in Vermont and New Hampshire, we have, you know, the, the main campus within Wright River Junction but we also have um, outpatient clinics in Burlington, Newport, Keene, Littleton, Brattleboro, Bennington, Rutland. Um, VA is really a presence within the state. Well, you give a very eloquent endorsement of the uh, services the VA provides. I also let me take one moment to get again give that uh, 800 hotline number for veterans. One eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. So in the um, couple of minutes we have left, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, suicides are probably underreported, um, that there are a number of deaths that may indeed be suicide, or sometimes I think some of the behaviors can be su- indirect suicide. Uh, people who, are, uh, who uh, for example, have alcohol cirrhosis are still drinking, uh, other people who are still using drugs when they know the, the extreme risk of overdose. But h- how do we get it? 
at these numbers to at least try and sort out where, where, who are we missing? That is a fabulous question that I wish um, I did have a clear answer for. Um, I think, again, just knowing the complexity, we're doing as much. I can say that in VA, we're trying to document um, as much as we can in regards to whether there's suicide intent, whether um, just, again, looking at all those risk factors, looking at previous hospitalizations and um, medical issues and psychosocial stressors that are going on and looking at all those factors just to get a clearer picture of everything that's contributing to a death by suicide. And there's sometimes when we don't know, I think you highlighted a, a beautiful point that I haven't heard much today is substance use and just figuring that as a risk factor, right? So earlier I had mentioned um, the time between thought and action is about an hour. And when you add substances into that equation that alters our realities and perceptions, that can go very quickly, right? So um, I think just trying to provide as much support and access to care that we can is really helpful. And again, I know I'm very biased because I work at the VA, but one of the things I love about it is that it is a one-stop shop, that there are services there um, for people to access regardless of what it is. If you need help paying a bill, if you need help with housing, if you need mental health, substance use, whatever it is, an eye doctor, we've got you covered. We're going to have to end in a minute. I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Nearest, for being here. We talk about the golden hour in trauma, and maybe we should be talking about that golden hour in suicide prevention. Again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Thank you all for being with us today. Please be extra kind to yourselves and to others. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.